You're listening to 103.5 WNHH Community Radio. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. Chef Gabriela Alvarez Martinez started Liberation Cuisine to nourish frontline activists and help sustain transformative social justice work. A Boricua born in Brooklyn, a part of her heart was always connected to the islands of Puerto Rico, her ancestral homeland. After the recent hurricanes, Gabriela traveled to the island to learn from and support the work of an incredible group of artist activists through the collective Ajitarte. On today's show, Chef Gabriela shares her journey into food, cooking for the movement, her recent collaborations in Puerto Rico, and much more. Be sure to check out the companion post at thetableunderground.com, where we share more info about the history of colonization in Puerto Rico, the fight for independence, as well as beautiful photos and links to many of the groups mentioned in this interview. We're grateful to Common Ground High School for honoring Gabriela with their Environmentalist in Residence Award and bringing her to New Haven, Connecticut this spring, helping to make this interview possible. Also, a shout out to Taina Asile and La Banda Rebelde for the music in today's show. Hi, Gabriela. Hi. I'm so excited you're here. Me too. So even though I know you a little, I actually don't know a lot about your history with mm. food. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit. Did you grow up cooking? I grew up cooking a little bit. I have two sisters that I grew up with. And of the three of us, I was actually the one who people like said that liked to cook more. And I kind of remember cooking. But just like dynamics and things in society and at home I got really frustrated with the idea that women are supposed to be in the household in the kitchen and I felt really frustrated by that and sort of rebelled and stopped cooking for many years Mm. and it wasn't until I was studying public health in uh, undergrad college that I realized how important food is and um, sort of went back to older memories and older experiences with food as medicine and came back to that. Mm, Cool. And so you grew up in New York. Yeah. And what led you into cooking professionally from that moment where you sort of got reinterested in food? Yeah. Well, honestly, I really had a a vision. Um, I was watching the Food Network and I had just been studying public health for four years and just realized like how many how food is an introduction a way into people's hearts and people's minds and just decided that day that I was going to go to culinary school and that was going to be my form of feeding and healing in Mm. the world that's great where did you go to culinary school I went to the natural gourmet institute in Manhattan New York and it's a school that's really dedicated to uh French mostly like French um, traditional like culinary technique like lots of culinary schools are and then they have a health supportive lens in terms of the recipes and sort of the meal planning approaches that they do and since your family is Puerto Rican how did you kind of learn French technique at that school and how did you come back into cooking food that was also from your family's culture Yeah, I mean, the technique is, it's like knife skills and sauces and things that are really basics. And more so, it was building confidence, Um, building confidence, especially, I don't have any other cooks or, well, I I have lots of cooks in my extended family. Um, I don't really have any other chefs in my family. 
and especially as a woman and Puerto Rican woman, you don't see that on the Food Network very often right. or like almost at all. So really building confidence um, for me to say, oh, I know how to make a sauce and I can just change the ingredients and I've done this before. I'm just going to use those techniques and cook food that feeds my soul and mm -hmm. feeds like my family and my friends' souls. What is the political context of what is happening in Puerto Rico uh, in general and especially in relation to the hurricane? Yeah, so Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, which means that they are they have to follow federal laws and they can they vote in the primaries, but they actually can't vote for the president. Uh, so they are now being you know, they have to follow the laws that Trump is setting and that are unfolding in these like four years and they have that has been the case always um and so one law that has been around but, wait, but for, they have no representation in our government right no they have no represent they have, do have one person who doesn't have like can't vote like in the house of representatives okay and um <laughs> which yeah is like really crazy and lots of people don't know that um and they are technically u.s citizens but they're really second class citizens uh, and so when the hurricane hit, the one law like the Jones Act is something that was really showing up a lot and that folks have really been talking about because the Jones Act says that all ships that come into the port in Puerto Rico have to have a U.S. flag. They must be U.S. ships, which means that plantains that are grown in the sister island right next door of the Dominican Republic mm. have to go to the United States, get taken off the ship, put back oh onto a different ship, and then shipped back to Puerto Rico, which is um, huge. It's it's very, very costly, which means that plantains are like three times more expensive in Puerto Rico as you could find them like even in the United States or if like the Dominican Republic could trade directly with Puerto Rico. Right. So, and these are like a staple of people's diet. Right, right. Right. And so when you have a whole farming industry that is wiped out, like farms being super cleaned out with the hurricane and right. then you're not able to bring in food, um, or the food that's coming in is super expensive, it's a really big problem. And so Trump actually put made the Jones Act, uh, he like, what was the word? He like paused it for, I think it was like a month or two months, um, and to then brought it back interna up. international aid for a few months, and then... No, well, well really to let in, um, to like reduce the, the cost was okay. my understanding. Like I heard many things and like lots of countries really offering aid and they were really turned away. Like Cuba offered aid and because mm. of the relationship with the United States and Cuba, they said no and Puerto Rico had no capacity they had no like ability to say yes we like want your aid right and these um, are the effects of colonization that still go on today and that people don't know about like you, they just think oh people should just get it together but there's all of these things that are preventing people on the island from being able to control their own economy and their lives absolutely and so we're not seeing like the caribbean solidarity so the caribbean which will continue to face hurricanes we're not seeing them being able to pull together resources and support each other when they could be the very first people to arrive to any island in a time like when a, when the next hurricane hits mm -hmm. and then we're also not seeing i mean a huge thing with colonization is like puerto rico doesn't sort of flesh out their response systems because there's sort of this like the United States will handle it, the United States will take care mm. of it. Um, and so there was just like so much bureaucracy and so much unknown about what was going to happen. Um, and the United States took forever to show up. And right. the response has not really been 
very good. Um, lots of folks have sort of been left in the dark. And so like with this one policy, we're seeing so much of the issues of colonization and um, yeah, policies that are really put in place to support shipping industry and the economy of the United States. Right. So when you talk about people at Ajiarte and others who are fighting for liberation and, and independence, is that basically what people are responding to that and and much more that and much yeah. much more So I'm really interested to hear about this trips that you recently took to Puerto Rico right after Hurricane Maria. Yeah. What were you doing there? Yeah. So I took, I've taken two trips since Hurricane Maria. It's been about, I guess we're almost on seven months at this point. Uh, The first trip I took was like two or three weeks after the hurricane hit. And I um, honestly, I had a, I had a ticket prior to the hurricane and reached out to some friends who are artists and activists out there and said, does it make sense for me to still go? How can I support? And they were like, yes, absolutely. Because me being there and just cooking meals for the collective, for the group, allowed them um, more time and brain space to do the organizing work that they were doing that was super important. So for me, it was really important in terms of being in solidarity as a Puerto Rican in the diaspora to show up in whatever form I could really uplift uh, folks on the island and folks who know what's best mm-hmm. um, and know how to do it. And so that was my that was my first trip and it was really it was really impactful. It was really painful in lots of ways. It was really beautiful and uplifting in other ways. And we I had also been, you know, connected with them for a long time and so we had been planning a residency for quite some time and once the hurricane hit we sort of readjusted and shifted mm. some things to think about what that second trip would look okay. like and so these were artists that you met in new york first yeah so these are artists who are part of a collective called agitarte which is a combination of two words uh agitate agitar in spanish and art arte in spanish and so they are, they do artist activist work. They do lots of street theater. They create visual art that is political in content. Um, and they organize, they are activists who are like frontline really um, pushing for decolonization on the island and, and sovereignty for, mm. for people. And so all of the work that they've been doing since the hurricane is really with that lens of thinking about like, how can we be sustainable and sovereign um, within our communities while there's also like larger political work mm. that's happening. Yeah. And, wow. and so I met them, uh, at El Puente, uh, through, um, just work that we were doing there. Which is a, a place we, in, in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. So El Puente is in the South side of Williamsburg, which is historically has lots of uh, deep, like Puerto Rican roots. And they do after school programming for young people of many ages. And so I, had was doing lots of different health and wellness work there. And towards the end, really, as I was graduating culinary school, that was where I taught my first cooking classes with elementary through high school. 
um it's a beautiful beautiful place yeah, it's a really and so nice place. i met folks through there and then we just kept connecting and building and i got to go cool. and continue to get to go see them in puerto rico that's great and so they're based in puerto rico ajitarte yeah. is based yeah. in puerto rico and they have a collective house and workshop space called casa taller mm. and so um after the hurricane they uh did some really like heavy fundraising for for casa taller to rebuild the the roof mm. and really they have a, a garden in the space a community garden and they wanted to really shift it up to the roof and they were actually able to raise more than they thought and so they used that that funding to support uh, centros de apoyo mutuo, which are centers of mutual support that popped up around the island, um, really in the moment where they mm, needed to be feeding yeah. themselves and and organizing. Can you talk a little bit, like your first trip, you went there right after the hurricane hit, and what, like from here, from the states, from the mainland part of the states, we're seeing like people don't have water and and electricity for like really long periods of time. What was it like when you went down there? Was there running water or what was the condition i was staying uh, in santulce which is in the metropolitan area and so we had running water and um at the time there was no electricity there was no power um and so people like in terms of the kitchen we well actually ajitarte at casa taller they have they happened to have they really set up prior they had a solar panel that did have connected like outlets to it so people would soak mm. up that electricity during the day people would charge up their phones and their computers um, but then it really meant at a certain point once your battery died what you were able to you know phone calls or emails or you know any any like even Netflix to pull your attention out of the situation that you're in but really also like the work that you needs to be done would sort of have to take a pause which created some challenges and at the same time was really beautiful because we would be um, you know, after preparing a dinner on like a camping gas stove and preparing dinner early because you still have daylight and using the ingredients that you have because there's no refrigeration, mm. um, we would all sit together at a meal with, you know, small solar lanterns and be singing and talking and really connecting in a way that sometimes we get distracted when You're there is electricity and, and yeah. such. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, you know, definitely an it was like it was very intense and i'm really happy that i got to be there because from far away it was also really painful to know that your family and your friends are going some through something super intense and you can't do anything so being there was great and also was like wow people have no idea what it is to have to figure out how to wash your clothes to spend all day thinking about just your basic needs um and how how intense that is when you haven't been living that way before and you are not set up for that right um so yeah it's mm. a little bit yeah about no that. i think it's important to share because it's like there are these natural disasters and then people pay attention to them for a few days and then they move on and you know but the people living in it are still living in it and so it's good to hear more details about what's actually going on yeah and that's the metropolitan area i mean i still have family members who don't have right. running water or electricity and it's not even just hurricane maria there was a hurricane i think less than a week before hurricane irma and so right. folks who you know many folks lost power and and water then and still haven't still gotten it back it. yeah yeah it's terrible um so that was on your first trip, and then you had been planning this residency for you to go for for a longer period right. of time 
how long, how much later was that that you went back? I so the, my first trip was in like mid October, and then I went back um, like early January, and I was there for a month and a half, and and it was interesting. A really big takeaway for me with this whole trip and just the past few months has been um, again about solidarity and. While I had certain ideas of what would be helpful at this point after the hurricane and what things to be thinking about as organizers and community based on my experience here in the United States Mm -hmm. in the Northeast, um, it was actually I had to really like pause and listen to what people there were saying and really, you know, not necessarily follow my own experience, but say I'm going to really trust and follow the lead of the folks who are there. Mm. Um, which, duh, I think we like often say that, but to really completely like step into that and do that for me was a really powerful experience. And so we shifted gears and um, there was a group of artists who were working on a scroll project, which is soon to be coming out and they have an exhibit opening in early June in um, New York City, which folks should definitely oh, cool. check out. Um, but the scroll project is this scroll that sort of unfolds through your hands. And so as this scroll is passing through your fingers, you're seeing this beautiful imagery of, uh, history in Puerto Rico, colonization in Puerto Rico, and basically all these things that led to where we've been post hurricane Maria. It's like, yes, an environmental thing that happened. And also there was a lot of political, you know, things that led that created, the the emergency state that we're in mm. um so this scroll project is happening and there's all these artists super in that zone and working on that and while i was there again like nourishing and making sure that they had um a meal to eat at the end of the day mm. and then i was also um supporting and building with the different gums the centros de apoyo mutuo so there are several throughout the island and i did about like five or six workshops at different ones and then folks would come and join in uh, around sprouting in particular sprouting because it's something that can grow within days so when an almost an entire farming industry is wiped out by a hurricane and if folks don't know (laughs) people still still need to eat and um puerto rico is an island and imports are controlled by the united states and were not really effective in working for many reasons um, so people needed to grow like quick food. So a lot of folks were thinking about how can we, you know, grow sprouts and how can we inform people about how to do that? And then the other thing was food preservation, like canning. Uh, there's awesome folks who were doing canning in the United States, the queer kitchen brigade and sending food over, which was amazing because that food didn't go bad while it was waiting on the ports. Right. And so I was there in person. And so I was also offering um, canning workshops for folks to think about in the future. Like when the next hurricane hits, how do we preserve food? Like if we have things hurricane hit and we have things in our refrigerator that are going to go bad or if we can prep beforehand and have vegetables and fruits um, that are not that canned with. Yeah, yeah. And are not canned with preservatives. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. What kind of sprouts were you growing? Oh, we were growing, um, we were using mostly alfalfa. Um, and we we made that choice really because it's, I think it's a really great intro sprout for folks who haven't like been eating sprouts before. It doesn't, it's not really big and it doesn't have a really strong flavor. And then we would share with them that you can do it with other things like radishes or broccoli or, you know, soy, like lots of different things are possible. 
Um, but we chose to really start mostly with alfalfa and leave folks with some alfalfa seeds to some go seeds, with. Yeah. Yeah. And so what other kinds of things were happening at the comms, the mutual support mm-hmm. centers? Oh my God. So many things. I mean, they each really have a personality because they are created by people in the community. It's not like one movement. It's, um, people coming together and, and saying, what is it that we need right now? And many of them are based in open buildings. So, um, one, you know, it's like schools that have been abandoned or buildings that aren't being used and really folks coming in and saying, we're going to use a space and we're going to bring stoves and ovens and we're going to, you know, feed up to 400, 600 people per day right after the hurricane. Mm. Um, people are creating like healing centers. People are creating spaces um, where you can like bring used furniture or clothing and then it can be sold to bring income that will like help sustain the space. There's acupuncture going on. Um, there's gardens being created like in cities. Um, all kinds of things are really going on. Mm-hmm. And, and what's really special is that it's, be, it's, it's really grassroots. So, you know, people can donate ingredients or um, their time and in return get, get a meal. Um, at this point, seven months later, really, you know, lots of the original funding and support isn't there. And also as like life comes like more becomes more normalized on the island for some folks, um, like as water comes back or electricity comes back, folks sort of start to go into old routines where it's not the same vibe of everyone being collective and, and working together and, um, being in that same form. So some are sort of shifting gears a little bit to really um, connect with where people are at and how to continue to support mm-hmm. and how to maintain sustainability. Mm. Yeah. I know in preparation for going there, you did a little fundraising. Yeah, campaign, yeah. <laughs> and you made this super beautiful video about yeah. your coconut milk flan. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the video was made by some friends of mine who have, they do like food media and they're called Create the Remarkable. Highly recommend them. <laughs> and uh, it was, yeah, flans. I mean, that was actually the very first recipe that I learned and memorized. I think it's the only mem- mem- memorized. <laughs> no, I have other recipes memorized, but it's like the first and really dear to my heart. Um, my mom was taught that recipe in Puerto Rico and she used to make it to raise funds for herself and sort of have like money to get things that she needed and wanted to buy for herself. And then, um, yeah, I was like, what's something that we can make quick and just sort of raise funds. So we raised like, I think it was like a thousand dollars, um, just through flans, which is like a pretty, you know, lots of folks raise so much money, but just flans and like me and my mom and, um, like our community, it was really awesome to, Did you cook them to see that mom? happen. Yeah. I'd sometimes I would even leave, I'd, I'd be away and she would make the flans. Um, uh, so it was kind of like a tag team <laughs> effort as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about this recipe, but can you share it or is it like a closely <laughs> guarded secret? It is it is a it is a guarded a guarded secret. <laughs> I'm usually really open with my recipes because this is not my recipe and I always give credit for recipes um when we're talking about like appropriation and the cool thing about recipes is that you actually can't copyright them because there is so much inspiration flowing. Um but I do always give credit. And when I'm asked not to share it, I don't share it. And I've been asked yeah. not to share this one. 
Well, people can check out the video and we'll put it up on yeah. our website because it's really beautiful and Absolutely. inspiring. And and hopefully if you sell them again, then other people can try them out. So. Yeah. I think we'll be doing some other flavors in the future, like maybe a mango mm. or a pumpkin flan. Nice. So I know one of the things that you've done with food and wellness is um, menu planning with mm-hmm. people. What does that look like when you're using either in Puerto Rico or in New York? Um, Ooh. Yeah. I don't know if they're different, like what kind of wellness stuff you were doing. Definitely different. I mean, I think so much of wellness is connected to Mother Earth. And so I think that's why folks talk about like local and seasonal food. Um, so in Puerto Rico it's thinking about like what produce and what ingredients can be found of good quality on the island. And then of course, and then similar here, like um, if it's for example, a sancocho dish, which is a traditional stew with lots of like root vegetables from the island, um, how do we shift that to keep maintain the flavor and the culture of it while also using like butternut squash or potatoes or, or, or different ingredients that are really local to the Northeast of the United States. Um, so it's definitely looking at what's local, what's seasonal. And then, yeah, super important to be thinking about like who we're feeding and what food will feed their soul. Mm. Um, so in Puerto Rico, that's often like Puerto Rican cuisine in the Northeast, depending on what space I'm in. I'll like think about that. And sometimes it ends up being Puerto Rican because that's where, you know, that's what feeds my soul. And as the person who's feeding like that ricochets into the meal, I do a lot of catering also. So whether it's catering or meal planning, really, I've actually never like done the same menu twice with catering because I specifically ask what are like, are there any dietary needs? Um, I will like cook most anything, but it really is about um, checking in with folks who I'm cooking for. Um, and then when it's meal planning, like what are things that you do like to eat and then working around that and finding ways to like recreate that or re-inspire the things that are already inspiring the individual. I love that you just said about cooking for cooking food for people that feeds their soul. Cause I feel like for me, part of the reason that I got into cooking was that it was like a way to show love for people and and I think so much of social change work is also about like, I think about radical love as this way of being motivated to make change in the world that isn't about reacting to hate, that isn't mm-hmm. about kind of just coming at the world with anger, because I think that it's important that we manifest like in our change work, in our um, ways that we're trying to make change, that we sort of do it with the intention and with the energy that we want to see in the end, right? So even if we're like fighting against something really unjust, like colonization or um, mass incarceration or these things that are horrible, right? But that we also do it with this intention of like manifesting something that goes beyond that oppression. And so I think of food as, as a way to do that. Yeah, you know, I don't often, like, you asked me earlier about how I got into cooking, and I don't often make this response or this connection, but I was sort of really getting involved in activism and sort of going to marches and going to meetings and being involved in that way in activism for 
a few years when I was in my like early 20s and um, and also in college really being sort of like frontline and 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 that yeah like in that space and I burnt out really hard um, also college was really just challenging for me and and that combination was really intense and I for my own body like I had to figure out a different way to be with myself and be with the world and that was a combination of like how I'm showing up in the world and also what I'm putting into my body um, and when I think about I, I never I was always like my life is like deeply committed to social justice and I needed to like figure out a way to be in that and I will still show up to marches and also I sometimes won't show up to marches. I'll like feed, you know, I'll figure out a way to support differently. And for me, like cooking has been a way to stay engaged with things that I'm really, really passionate about. And to, I mean, so my company is is Liberation Cuisine and really the point of it is to feed movement work, to feed social justice, to feed activists because I know how hard it is to be frontline and I know how hard it is to like keep showing up and keep that passion and that fire. And we can do that absolutely with love. And I know so many people in my life who are rocking it and are able to do that in a way that I <laughs> like couldn't do it. Um, and I really, really admire that and want to keep feeding that and keep showing them love and uplifting them because, I mean, we really need we really need everyone and in particular folks who are really putting their bodies on the line. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. I didn't even ask you till this moment to talk about liberation cuisine, but that is what your business is called. Yeah. And so when you talk about cooking for the movement and liberation cuisine, can you explain to people who might not know your orientation in the world, like mm. what movements are you cooking for? What people are you trying to support in liberation mm-hmm. for people? Yeah. Um, cooking for lots of people. I mean... Definitely Soul Fire Farm is a community that I cook for and they do racial justice within the food system. So I do a lot of racial justice work. It could look like um, Soul Fire and then I'll often cook for Race Forward, with it, which is a nonprofit that does racial justice trainings in like bigger organizations or, or bigger companies. Um, so they're like different, but it's really that approach of, of racial justice. Mm. Um, and then cook for like move like actions so the we recently cooked for the coalition of immokalee workers and that was even more of like organizing multiple chefs to provide nourishment for a um hunger strike that they were doing against wendy's in new york city and so Mm. really pulling our resources together to make sure that their community had nourishment throughout that week um so yeah, lots of food justice, lots of racial justice. Um, have done like s- some work with uh, the Audrey Lord Project, which is an organization that I really love and support, and like the LGBTQ gender non-binary like communities mm. um, are also people who I really support. Um, and then lots of like healer collectives, artist collectives, folks who are just really thinking about um, different approaches to the world, um, different approaches to what has happened, like capitalism, colonization, um, land collectives. So people who are um, like wild seed, people who are trying to create um, different ways of being in the world yeah. um, and thinking about like the political, the economic, the interpersonal, um, all of those pieces are really spaces that I love to nourish and, and feed. That's wonderful. I appreciate you listing all of that because part of the whole purpose of this show is to help people 
see more things that are not always visible to everybody. And so um, when I talk about like creative social justice, what you just named, like all of those different groups are to me what represents that. It's like how to make social change in ways that falls outside of kind of the mainstream and, and is willing to like really ask deeper questions about how do we rethink how we do economy, how we do relationship, how we do society, how we do activism, everything. And so those are all awesome examples of that. So yeah. we'll, we'll post, I'll post all of that info, links to all those places up so people can check them out. Awesome. In terms of feeding the movement, how do you feel that's received by other activists who you're working with? I feel like it's been super well received. I feel like it's never been questioned like that's not real activism. I think it's actually been like an exhale of like, thank you. Like, thank mm. you for, for showing up. Like, thank you for feeding us. Um, food is something that, like you said, it does really touch people. And um, yeah, to be able to be in a meeting, to be at a conference, to be really like thinking about challenging things and then have like a beautiful meal waiting for you. And I mean, no matter who it is, like I will shop organic because it's better for the world and like there's no cutting corners, like whether no matter the budget, what mm -hmm. it is like and I'll make it beautiful and it's the same recipes and it's meant to really, really feed. So it's been it's been received really well. And folks, I think folks are actually really excited and really hungry for it. Um, both like activists, more like nonprofit groups, like all different kinds of people are really excited about liberation cuisine. And actually, like in the past few years, there are other folks who have really been moving in the same direction. And it's really inspiring and really exciting. And mm -hmm. something that a direction that I'm like really personally moving in is putting energy into like uplifting all of us together and really sort of creating a new standard and creating like uh, a little bit of a splash so that folks see that there are people who are cooking and people who are prioritizing social justice both in like how they're making choices around food and who mm -hmm. they're feeding mm -hmm. um so i'm really excited i think it's been received well and i think there's a lot more to come around that yeah and it, it means so much for the meal to be special and beautiful and given attention to versus when you are in a meeting and there's just like pizza or chips or you know yeah but to, it's i think there's like a whole different level of nurturing and caring for that when people are feeling burnt out and exhausted, mm -hmm. like that really matters. I think mm -hmm. that really teach, touches people. Yeah, and, and so often like folks who are really, um, like have like personal connections and really committed to social justice are folks who in some way, shape or form have been marginalized in their life and to have been marginalized and then be like put in the center and say, I'm caring for you right now is like a big statement. Mm -hmm. It says a lot. I really cook with intentions. That's just like a practice that I have. Um, so it's not necessarily like visible in the presentation, but I know that people feel it, like they feel the love. And actually this is not new, this is not me. Right. Um, people like secret ingredient being love. Um, and really like when elders will cook for family, you like feel all of that in the food. Um, and so I continue that tradition and I do set intentions and I do think about like, if there's a particular, um, if there's a particular like gathering or meeting or action that I'm cooking for, then I will hold the intention of that action or that meeting while I'm cooking or say like a few words to myself and 
to the universe mm-hmm. um, before the meal really goes out. Cool. Are the are you being paid for the things that you're doing in terms of movement cooking or, or are you sustaining it? Through? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> well, there's a mixture of things and it hasn't always been the case. I mean, I, I've personally, the way that it's been working so far, and this is something I'm like figuring out is I'll have clients who can, who I know can pay, pay a lot and pay mm-hmm. honestly. I mean, it's almost like normal for them to pay that much for food, which I'm astonished, but I will have them pay the max amount and then folks who can't pay, like I'll ask what the budget is and we'll make it work. And that's what I mean when it's like the same menu, it's the same food for everyone and there's no cutting corners because that doesn't make sense. Um, but that that's really the way that I've been doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are sometimes where I think there's sometimes where I'll, I'll just try to get like reimbursed for ingredients and then the labor is, mm-hmm. is free. Um, and then more and more thinking about like how can volunteers come in to support that labor piece. Um, and yeah, really, I think as some, as like, I also have very few like models in my life of people like elders who own businesses or who have been like starting this type of thing. And so I've been talking with friends and other peers around like what models, is it nonprofit? Is it a cooperative? Is it a business? Like what works and how do we make it work for, for our people? Um, (laughs) so yeah. yeah, that's kind of something figuring out, but it is also really important. Like artists, I know talk about this a lot and chefs, I think we're talking about it too. It's like, it's important to feed people we want to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Did I and say finding feed or pay? Both. Feed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also important to pay. <laughs> oh, to pay people we want to succeed. To pay succeed. people we want to succeed. Oh, absolutely. Right. No, right. and I think that, like, that's why I asked you about it, because I think that um, it's really important that people get paid for their work. And, and I think you've sort of just almost just by accident created a sliding scale right for for people who can afford to pay should pay more and then that sort of subsidizes the people who don't I mean we live in a society that has complete economic inequity so we need to figure out how to use that and turn it back on itself so that yeah the idea of fairness and what something costs should be relative to like what people can actually have and can afford otherwise we're just like replicating the oppressive system that we live in absolutely and there's some interesting projects happening around like restaurants or mm-hmm. pop-ups that yep. have like charge specific like charge white people more money and people right. of color less money and it's been interesting to read about the responses to that yeah. because i actually don't it's not a visible sliding scale. I don't ask people to place themselves on the scale. I know the budgets of many of like the organizations or the folks who, who are like my clients. And if I don't know, then I'll ask. And, and based on that, like I'll offer pricing and, and then if it's like an issue, then I'll, I'll always work with you. But it's just interesting to see how things are like unfolding around food and maybe it'll change for liberation cuisine. Um, but right now that's where I've landed. Yeah. And I think it's okay to be both ways. I mean, I think Absolutely. the point of those restaurants is actually to really get people to see and exactly. think about this inequity. Exactly. And that's actually part of the objective. And I think for you, the objective is cooking for people doing social change work and you're trying to make it work for all those different people. So I think both of those things are good. So 
So another piece of the work that you do that's very connected is working up at Soul Fire Farm during the Black and Latinx Farmers Immersion Program, yeah. and you run the kitchen very often. So um, can you tell us just really quick what the Black and Latinx Farmers Immersion is, and then we'll talk about the kitchen? Yeah, I love this program, and I love Soul Fire Farm. Uh, the Black and Latinx Farmer Immersion Program is an opportunity for Black and Latinx and Indigenous folks to come and get their hands on and learn farming practices and really to experience what it is to be on land, to live in community, to connect with Mother Earth and to feed themselves, to actually feel for a week what it what it could look like and what it could feel like to feed themselves. It's a really, really powerful program. And so much more. <laughs> and so much more. I know. Yeah, and really healing with the land. And mm-hmm. yeah. And so you run the kitchen there. Yeah. And so I feel like this is maybe my fourth or fifth summer. And um, it's actually, I'm going to tell you a quick story because it's on my mind. I, I applied to BLFI and I didn't originally get accepted because it's like so many people apply. And then a few weeks before the program, I saw that they were looking for someone to cook for the program. I was like, oh, my God, this is even better. And I, I really do feel like it was all meant to be. Mm. Um, and it was one of the first times that I was like entrusted to run a kitchen. And I've really gotten to grow with Soul Fire Farm and and grow with like what it means to manage a kitchen and have someone else working in the kitchen with me over time and. Um, the way that it works is that there's three meals a day and snacks in between. And a lot of the ingredients come from Soul Fire Farm or other farms locally. And, um, yeah, the meals are all of like black and brown culture, brown, like black and Latinx cultures. And so different folks have brought different recipes to the table and, um, we make them collectively. So what, you know, people will be farming and then, one group will come in to prepare lunch and we'll prepare it together. And there's often like stories or um, songs connected and people will all sit down at the table three times a day, which is really powerful. Like we'll say it and it's like, yeah, you sit down to eat. Um, but to actually sit down intentionally with 30 other people three times a day and say we are pausing to feed ourselves with this amazing meal that comes from our people, that comes from the land is really powerful and that is like bookmarking so much other amazing work and healing that's happening throughout the days. Mm. When people come and cook with you in the kitchen there, what are some of the things that you try to help them do or mm. learn from that experience of actually cooking with you to prepare the food? I actually cook very little. <laughs> I I think one of the main things is like trust. And I think that's true probably with like the farming aspect too. I'm sure that some of the farmers would say the same thing is like to trust yourself. Um, And I talk about often like intuitive cooking, Um, Mm -hmm. just like follow your intuition. That's how your ancestors did it. Like once upon a time there weren't recipe books. Like once upon a time it was just following your intuition and tasting and just chopping things and putting them in a pot and making it work. And that's how these amazing meals that we eat today were formed. So sort of re like reminding people that they are totally capable and able to do this. 
um, is Which one is piece. so huge, yeah. right? Because we live in a society that totally doesn't teach us that. So it's like you're saying to people, you're enough. Like Absolutely. You have the knowledge and the skill that you need. And it's interesting how something that is so simple like that is actually so huge and transformational. And it's one thing to say and another thing to feel it. And that's what's you know, so amazing somebody actually believe in it. you. Like mm-hmm. they're not just saying, we trust you, mm-hmm. but, but like we do. Like mm-hmm. you're going to cook that soup and we're going to all sit down and eat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's really like connecting with individuals in the group. So it's usually groups of like four or five. And sometimes there'll be someone who's like, really like confident and really excited and I'm like great then you're like you're le- you're on the pot like you are like managing and like timing what goes into the pot and seasoning and then there's someone who's like I don't know how to cut I don't know anything and so I might spend more time with them on like going over the cutting skills and that's like a knife skills lesson so it's really connecting with not only each what each person might say they want to know but also like feeling people's energy in the space because mm-hmm saying you are enough and like you matter is so connected to how we take care of ourselves. And so in the kitchen, it's a lot can come up for folks. Um, and people can often get like really stressed out, um, and really anxious and it may bring up just old stuff. Um, Mm. so that's also like an important piece. Mm. And it seems like that's really part of all the work that's happening there is to like pay attention to what's coming up with for people like old, Mm -hmm traumas or mm-hmm. or messages they've gotten in their lives and trying to leave space for healing that so that when mm-hmm. people are coming out they're they're realizing like oh I can change my patterns or or be in the world in a different way yeah and like messaging that's been passed down through generations right as well yeah are there particular recipes or foods that you think are really special or that people really love yeah um ooh. Well, I'll say I'll share two that are on my mind right now. One is um, mofongo, which is like green plantains. I actually make it with yellow plantain also. So Mm -hmm. like green and yellow plantains fried and mashed up and then some like garlic and cilantro and different seasonings with it. And I think about like two years ago, um, a chef, Nadine Nelson, who's from New Haven and works in New Haven, has a really awesome project. We was at BLFI and we had made some hibiscus tea earlier that day. And we were like, we don't want to waste the flowers. And she was like, why don't you candy it? So we candied all this hibiscus and ended up putting the candied hibiscus on top of the mofongos. And then it became a staple. Yeah, it became a staple in the menu, which is just speaks so much to like the space and collective brainstorming and like when we're all here together like the creativity that can come out yeah that Um, was total brilliance I've mm -hmm. eaten that and I didn't know that came from Nadine that is complete culinary brilliance yeah and it's like beautiful hibiscus and plantain and just it's it's beautiful right the color is beautiful um so that's one dish that I really really Mm -hmm. love and love that it's part of the menu um another dish is a dish that um Leah and Naima Penniman uh, contributed called Soup Jamu. Mm-hmm. And that's... And so Leah is one of the directors of Soul Fire and Naima's her sister. Yeah. For those who don't know. Yeah. Um, and so they have this soup that's from Haiti and it's eaten on January 1st, Independence Day, and has this like history of liberation and freedom behind it. And it was similar to the Sancocho I mentioned earlier, was altered a little bit because um, there's no jamu like the pumpkin isn't the same here as it is in Haiti but we use like butternut squash and the fact that it's connected to this story of independence 
and like freedom of like the first black, you know, like successful liberation, right. like movement is like yeah. really, really, um, really cool and inspiring. And we yeah. usually like to open with that meal and just set that tone. Yeah, that's great. And we actually have that recipe up on awesome. uh, the Table Underground website because it was also part of the Afro Seder liberation stuff. So, awesome. I mean, full disclosure, I am friends with Soul Fire Farm folks. I'm on the <laughs> board and there's so many amazing people connected to the Soul Fire Farm community who have been on my show. Um, not because I'm trying to just tell that story, but because there are so many amazing connected stories to tell about it. So there's lots of info up on the table underground. And because like there are really amazing movements and collectives happening in the Northeast of the United States right now. And it's mm -hmm. a really powerful moment of folks seeing each other and saying, I want to do that too. And we're going to figure out how to support each other. Yes. And it's like things are popping up and people are stepping up. And it's like the network just keeps growing right. and this is just like a representation of that. And it's totally, really, really I mean, beautiful. that was actually part of why I, I also got burned out doing movement work because I was organizing so much for like nine or 10 years. And I said, you know, I, I want to stay in this movement and I had been cooking also, but I also love telling the story or, or not even just telling it, but just drawing the stories out I was like I want more people to see all this inspiring amazing stuff that I see and so that was my inspiration for starting this show was to actually just get those stories recorded and out so more people could awesome could see what was going on yeah <laughs> so, super important yeah absolutely yeah. we started out talking about your time in Puerto Rico and um are you planning to return and, and what work do you think needs to happen in Puerto yeah. Rico? Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's, a, I'm definitely returning. Um, it's an important place for me in my life. And even before the hurricane, I've been really called to Puerto Rico and called to the independence of that Island and just like giving it a chance to survive, um, giving the Caribbean a chance to survive and thrive the way that it, you know, can and once has, so I'll definitely be going back. My, my, I feel like my role right now is to stay connected as much as possible and continue listening to what is needed and what is happening as things continue to shift. Um, so I almost don't want to say what I'll be doing because I don't, I don't know. I don't know what will be needed. I don't know exactly what, you know, how I can be supportive, but, um, I, I did a sort of a, a workshop on my my experience in Puerto Rico at the Just Food conference a few weeks ago and offered to like folks in the mainland like a way to support is just to really be talking and connected about the island. Like you said, it's not like a week and then we're over it um, to really be talking about it and to be able to shift um, to shift gears and say it's not you know, it's not about me and how I'm feeling right now. It's about like what needs to happen um so for me it's also been like processing my own like sadness and like pain and being removed it's like me constantly processing um it sucks to be away from the island and it sucks that I like am sustainable here but I know that liberation cuisine is not at a point where it could be sustainable on the island um hopefully one day um and that sucks. And so like me sort of working through my own feelings so that I can 100% show up to whatever shifts need to happen on the island. And, and to me, that's really what solidarity looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate so much that you keep talking about that, like responding to what people are saying that they need versus just coming in and 
yeah. doing what you think needs to be done because it's so important. Mm-hmm. And it seems so in line with what Ajiarte does in terms of like, I was looking at their website and just like using popular education and really supporting kind of working class grassroots artists and culture. And yeah, they've taught me so much about about that. It's been really a pleasure to to be building with them. Oh, I want to hear more. Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And really, it's just like connecting to one another. It's Mm. like we are human beings. We're not we don't have it figured out. I might be right. I might be wrong. We might have to figure something out. And mm-hmm. it's just like figuring out how to how to love each other. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I didn't ask you about this, but you're in New Haven right now, mm-hmm. up from New York City, because you were welcomed in at Common Ground and honored with their Environmental Leader of the Year uh, awards. So you're yeah. in residence here right, right now. And maybe you can just share a little bit about what it is that you have been been doing there connected with liberation cuisine work yeah so I've been here for like three days and um it's looked like cooking class a cooking class with young people with the students after school um called wellness like my ancestors and again really tapping into like wellness and healthy food can be that of our culture and that of our elders and our ancestors um have done some honestly just like holding space uh they had a day around restorative justice and for me it was really important to be in solidarity with like queer students and queer community members there and to think about like how do we be in a larger community um and then like holding space for immigrant students and students who are learning english Um, And then connecting with staff around curriculum and the farm that they have on campus around curriculum and how to have cooking be a more integrated part of the curriculum and the after school programming and just the experience that students students get there. Um, And today I got to cook lunch with the cafeteria staff and it was amazing Two beautiful, wonderful women. Um, I got to cook with them and it was just such a pleasure and really cool for me because I had never cooked in a cafeteria kitchen. That's so, like the best cafeteria kitchen. It's like the best cafeteria kitchen. <laughs> it's on a school, in a school with a farm mm-hmm. yeah, with two super enthusiastic cooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just really cool to think about school policies around fo- food um, and just like the things that they are supposed, that they have to like include and how they think about food and think about menu planning is really different from what I get to do. Um, so it's always cool to get to connect with people and say like what are you working with and what's the magic that you make happen that's awesome yeah thank you so much for talking with me thank you for having this this is so important and so so cool Mm, thanks to see photos and find links to many of the things discussed in today's show check out thetableunderground.com you can also find past episodes write-ups and recipes there Be sure to follow us on all the social medias and listen in on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Many thanks again to Taina Asili and La Banda Rebelde for the music on today's show. We'll go out on their song, Sofrito. I'm Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground. You're listening to 103.5 WNHH Community Radio.